Hey, Rachel, what's up with these dire wraiths? They seem kind of out of place in X-Men. Well, Miles, the dire wraiths are an offshoot of the Skrulls, and they are kind of out of place in X-Men. They're Rom Space Knight villains. Wait, who the what knight? Rom Space Knight. Like, read-only memory. Seriously? Yeah, totally. Actually, his original name was Kobol, but they changed it for marketing reasons. Huh, so how does he relate to the X-Men? That is an excellent question. Remember Team America? How could I forget five motorcycle guys with a mutant power to make a sixth motorcycle guy? Well, yeah, but see, the relevant part here is that they were a toy license Marvel picked up, and as a result, they got shoehorned into a bunch of unrelated stories. I think I see where you're going with this. That's right. Rom was a Parker Brothers property, and Parker Brothers made a deal with Marvel to make a comic to promote the toy line. Toys were a colossal failure, but the comic actually did okay. It ran 75 issues, and it was pretty well integrated into the Marvel Universe. So he's officially Marvel. Kinda. What came with the toys and license was really bare bones. I mean, both Mantlo basically created the entire ROM mythos and story from scratch, so the question of what Marvel owns and what belongs to Parker Brothers, which is now also a subsidiary of Hasbro, is pretty muddy. So you see ROM pop up in Marvel stuff now and again, but these days it's almost exclusively as an unnamed cameo or in his human form. And when the Spates Knights do show up again, it's either unnamed or distinctly missing ROM. Death by trademark dispute. Well, maybe. I mean, there have been rumors about a ROM revival floating around for years, and this year at San Diego, a ROM toy was one of Hasbro's show exclusives, which lends those rumors a little more footing. So he might show up at Marvel? Actually, he's been teased, and there have been some trademark rumblings, all rumors so far, linking him to another former license, one that's now at IDW. Wait, are you saying they're going to make him... A Transformer. What?! I'm Rachel Adderton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 31st episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So this time we're checking back in with Uncanny X-Men. So let's let's talk a little bit about what's been going on recently. Uh, they're back from Secret Wars. Thank the, God. The 12-issue toy commercial, which our listeners have assured us we should really give another chance to. So, okay, I will at least. I don't know about you, Rachel. The New Mutants are back from Nova Roma, which Thank we talked God. about last episode. And Cyclops is back off the team after teaming back up with the X-Men during Secret War. So he's off having a relatively normal life with his wife that looks a whole lot like Jean Grey, Madeline Pryor. <laughs> yeah, that'll last. So currently, the X-Men, they're a little bit different than they've been. And a big part of that is because Xavier is actually currently the team's field leader. He is walking again, and he is telepathing around and generally stepping on Storm's toes, literally and metaphorically. I'd like to point out that his costume right now is pretty impressively terrible. It's notably bad, yeah. Um, the guy's a damn sharp dresser when he's in a wheelchair, but apparently he's, uh, he's up in vertical, and then all of a sudden it's neon yellow everywhere. Oh man, it's going to get so much worse later. There's one specific panel for from, I think, late first series X-Factor involving a suit. And I don't remember who the artist is at the time, but he obviously has some really confused ideas of how fabric drape interacts with human genitalia. That is a sentence I never really thought I'd hear when I was talking about X-Men. But Like, I have a screen cap of this panel that's titled, just in all caps, AREA. <laughs> .jpg. Yeah, it is a notably dubious situation. So we're maybe like a minute into the podcast and we're already talking about superhero genitals. Listeners, this is why you come to us right here. Welcome, new listeners. <laughs> we're here to explain the X-Men. And their junk. So, junk aside, temporarily, we were talking about the X-Men team lineup at this point. Right, so we have Xavier and his junk leading. 
I'm sorry. Just crotch first all the way. <laughs> Xavier, like cinematic venom, leads from the crotch. <laughs> and? We also have Storm, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Rogue, and perennial teenager Kitty Pride. There's also Magic. She's not officially on the team, but she's kind of running around liminal to both the X-Men and the New Mutants right now. She's officially going to be joining the New Mutants really soon. Yeah, and just as a reminder, uh, Magic is Ilyana Rasputin, the kid's sister of Colossus. She's been through a hell dimension and aged a whole lot very quickly now. She's a sorceress. Definitely kind of a big deal. We'll get to more of what's going on with her later this episode. We're covering eight issues? Uh, Seven. Seven issues this episode. And man, there is a whole lot going on in them. Yeah, if you were a reader during this era, you would definitely feel like you were getting your money's worth when you bought an issue of Claremont's X-Men. I cannot even imagine dealing with this serially. It's not just that there's a lot going on. There's just no decompression. It's all always there. I mean, I made a list. Okay, so we've got in these seven issues, Secret Wars Fallout, a major breakup, Juggernaut, Selene Rogue, split personality issues coming to a head, Hellfire Moles and Shield, and hints that Xavier has been suspicious about the Hellfire Moles for long enough to send second string Peter Corbeau impersonator Michael Rossi to investigate between panels. There's high-level government fuckery. There's the rebirth of the Mutant Affairs Bill. There's Henry Peter Gyrick and Val Cooper doing their thing. Forge mucking around in tech from a toy line license and building up to some crazy shit with both his old mentor and a magic villain called the adversary who we won't be seeing for like a year we've got rachel summers the alternate universe kid of cyclops and gene gray who skipped the dark alternate days of future past timeline for the relative security of alternate past 616 we've got more Celine storm loses her powers there's space sorcery and of course this is all regularly intersecting with both the new mutants and kitty pride and wolverine and that's seven issues if they ever bring those micro machines commercials back rachel i think you have a new career waiting for you i'm impressed that's not the fastest i can go but okay so i hear what you're saying i mean obviously there's a huge amount of plot going on in the semi-arc of Uncanny X-Men. So much plot. But at the same time, I feel like what it does very well, and what Claremont is usually good at doing very well, is making sure that everything contributes to the story that he's trying to tell. So really, this is a story about identity. It's about, you know, coming to terms with a new self, having to deal with major changes that have happened. It's about anti-mutant hysteria and how that impacts this group of mutants who are trying to do the right thing, but slowly becoming more and more cynical and despairing. I kind of almost liken it to the town of Silent Hill in the video games, you know? It takes whatever happens to be around, and it just sort of uses that to make its own point. This is Silent Hill 1 played on a PS2 with texture smoothing and fast loading on. So yeah, you've got all of the components, but Harry skitters around like a spider and talks like a chipmunk. (laughs) There's more going on than the medium can entirely support. I think there's more going on in this metaphor than the podcasting medium can entirely support. Oh, I just think Silent Hill 1 with texture smoothing is hilarious. Well, that's entirely reasonable. Um, So, no, I do hear what you're saying. And yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're not wrong. This is immensely dense stuff. I find myself really taking a long time to chew through each issue as I reread them. Well, it's dense and it's interwoven. I mean, I sat down and read these over the course of about a day and a half. I had to flip back and refer back a lot during that time. I can't even imagine reading this serialized over seven months. I'm not asking for things radically decompressed. Just enough space to be able to follow a single thread. Like, this feels like a Gordian knot. (laughs) Very possibly. But what we do, what our job is, is to untangle Gordian knots. I I guess, uh, what's his face cut through them? Alexander the Great, right? Yeah. Okay, well, so we're not going to do that because we're all about finesse. So, let's dive in. Starting with X-Men 183. Okay, so where we are right now, um, the X-Men, like we mentioned, had just gotten back from Secret Wars very recently, back to, you know, Earth from Battleworld, which apparently is coming back in modern comics, but that's a topic for another time. Um, Oh my god, we're going to have to address that eventually. Yeah, probably. I'm actually really excited. I'm hoping that everyone's going to die. Everyone? Everyone. Each comic would be 22 pages of just, like, an empty field. 
that actually kind of sounds refreshing after Axis, at least. <laughs> Fair. So, yeah, yeah, the X-Men are back on Earth, and uh, most of them have stayed in Japan, as we saw with the previous issue, to deal with a giant dragon, as one does. But Rogue, upon the request of Xavier and the team, has gone back to the X-Mansion to make sure that the new mutants are doing okay. They are not. They are in deep, deep trouble at the Massachusetts Academy run by the White Queen, but that's irrelevant because Rogue doesn't even stick around long enough to listen to their panicked voicemails. This was, in fact, in the days of answering machines. It was some specific brand. Recordicall, I believe. Recordicalls, yeah. Yeah, and this Uh, is 1984, so for those of you following along at home, we are almost exactly 30 years out at this point. We move fast. And so, yeah, she she does hear Colonel Michael Rossi, who you may recall from a previous episode we did about the New Mutants. Or from like two minutes ago in this episode. The important thing is that we resent him because he's not Peter Corbo. Yes, him and everyone else. He's left a panicked answering machine message at the Xavier Institute saying, hey, this whole shield thing is not working out. And then it gets cut off and there's a... Now, the S.H.I.E.L.D. thing has gone down entirely off-panel so far. What we will learn is that Professor Xavier is suspecting that something ambiguous and sinister, but not capital S sinister, maybe afoot at S.H.I.E.L.D., has sent Rossi to go spy on his behalf, and Rossi has gotten caught by what we will later learn are operatives of the Hellfire Club. Yeah, Rogue kind of flips out and heads directly there. The other important thing about Rossi that I don't think Miles mentioned is that he is the ex-flame of Carol Danvers. That's E-X, not X, who, of course, Rogue absorbed the personality of in her first appearance way back in the day. Even more significantly, her memories and those memories' emotional connections and connotations. Carol has the memory of her life sort of as data in her brain, but none of the associations. Rogue's got all of that, though, and so when she hears Rossi in trouble, she snaps and immediately goes off to save him at any cost, because that's Carol's instinct that she's now got. And she doesn't even realize that this is weird. I mean, she doesn't even realize that she herself, Rogue, has never met this guy. She just automatically assumes, Michael Rossi, I care a lot about him. Gotta go. We talk a lot of shit about Rogue's accent. I don't know what you're talking about. You forgot to say sugar at the end of that? Sugar? This is one of the rare points where they make for very useful shorthand because right now Rogue is basically two people. She's got her consciousness and she's got what's basically a replica of Carol Danvers' psyche, which sometimes comes to the fore. And the quickest way to tell that right now in the comic is from her speech patterns. Claremont does that beautifully. We'll see another excellent example of that later in in this arc. But for now, yeah, she attacks the helicarrier, like kind of supervillain style. She keeps doing this thing. Okay, so you know like Gambit's got his playing cards that he throws and they explode? I think this was maybe a precursor of that that didn't really catch on. She keeps throwing silver dollars really hard. Like, the idea that if you throw a coin hard enough, you can break the helicarrier is, I think, really fun. The idea that that's Rogue's major MO is dumb. You know, you said it's very supervillain. I don't entirely agree. What I think it is is very, very Carol. I mean, the disregard for destruction and life is not so much. Safe to say. But the fact that someone she cares about is in danger, that single-minded devotion to the objective, the willingness to just say, screw it and go in swinging, that's totally Carol. And that, I think, is a part of Carol Danvers' personality that really never left Rogue, because you can see echoes of that even when she's fully in control of herself. Or something that was in Rogue's personality that she didn't really get to explore until she absorbed Carol. You gotta remember, before she was with the X-Men, she was very much what Mystique had built into a kind of stereotypical supervillain. But as a person, she was really scared of her powers. She was really scared of other people, and she was really shy and really tentative. And I think having Carol in her head and having access to that maybe gave her the chance to experiment with being a person a little bit outside of that mold. But unfortunately, it totally doesn't work out, because while she does successfully rescue Colonel Rossi and, in the process, get framed for murdering one of the two Hellfire agents by the other Hellfire agent, who S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't know is a Hellfire agent, so it just looks like Rogue's a cop killer, basically. She brings Rossi, who's unconscious, back to Carol Danvers' mom 
mom's place to nurse him back to health. And she's fully in Carol mode at this point. She thinks she's Carol at yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah. And so when Rossi wakes up, he's like, what the hell is going on? I've never seen this crazy lady with the skunk hair. I'd like to think he says it in exactly that voice. <laughs> like, really sort of like nasal and whiny. <laughs> he's like, he's like a 16-year-old who really wants to sound academic. I bet he says females instead of women. <laughs> Probably. Michael Rossi is Reddit. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway gradually rogue starts realizing wait a minute something's not right i'm not carol i'm rogue but wait or am i and she gets sort of just sucked into these old memories of carol at one point she's like envisioning herself as a little girl playing with these other kids from carol's childhood Carol's siblings it is tragic as hell like you just feel so bad for this person who admittedly did something awful to begin this predicament that she's in but at the same time you can tell she's not terrible she didn't do it maliciously or at least she didn't think the consequences through it kind of feels like rogue's secondary mutation in this context is poetic justice i want to go back a step to the stuff that goes down on the helicarrier because we've talked before about the concept of sort of inexorable momentum and escalation specifically Mm -hmm. i think in terms of the dark phoenix saga and it's playing out here on maybe a more personal scale but with every bit the same gathering momentum in a sequence of events that really started back in Avengers Annual number 10. Rogue's first appearance. And is going to hit a climax a few issues from now with the loss of Storm's powers. Every step and every decision Rogue's made since then is leading up to that specific collision. But just as things are heating up there, Rogue admits, hey, I now understand what I did. I now understand how much this must have hurt. Carol, I actually have a a quote here. I never realized how much she lost because of me. I took not just her memories, but the emotions that were bound up with them, all the things that gave life and self meaning. Now when she looks at you or her folks, she may know who you are, thanks to Professor Xavier's therapy, and how she should feel towards you. But I'm the one who feels those emotions. Rossi's not, I mean, he, he, he doesn't really give a shit about Rogue's problems because Carol Danvers was the woman he loved and Rogue was a supervillain who did awful stuff to her. And so he says, so what happened to Carol? Or sorry, so what happened to Carol? That's pretty good. Okay. And uh, Rogue says, I'm Carol in all the ways that count. And then he just decks her and says he wishes he could kill her. And she's just lying there on the floor, just psychologically broken, saying she wishes that too. You feel for everybody because everybody's right, but everybody's also wrong. In the meantime, speaking of people being jerks to each other, <laughs> X-Men, we've alluded before, I think in the Kitty Pride and Wolverine episode we did, to the fact that Peter uh, Colossus breaks up with Kitty after Secret Wars, and this is the issue where that happens. And it's the suckiest breakup ever. Man, Kitty is such a champ about it, and she's saying all the sympathetic things, and he's just being such a total twit. I forget how young Colossus is in this arc. Like, I think of him as in his 20s. No, he's 19, and he is so very 19. Yeah, when I was 19, I was an idiot, especially about anything involving love or commitment. We made some good decisions together, but it was really only luck that we managed to see ourselves through, I think. Yeah, it really sucked when you cheated on me with, like, some alien healer during that major crossover event. Hey, if it hadn't been for the Beyonder, it never would have happened. Hey, if we were in Siberia, we would have been married by then. (laughs) I want to point out that we actually had a listener write in about that who has a colleague who grew up in Siberia and confirmed that, no, in fact, people were not getting married at 15 in Siberia then. What the hell? Did this person happen to ask whether people were, in fact, fighting tractors all the time, as X-Men would have us believe? No, but apparently his colleague was sufficiently entertained that he's talking about going as Colossus next Halloween. So I feel like we're doing some good in the world. (laughs) Yes. Thank you to both of you very, very much. But yeah, Kitty, you know, I feel for her so much in this scene because she just cares so much about Peter that she doesn't want to, like, turn it into a big fight or start condemning him. I mean, there's one point where he's talking about Zaji, the woman he fell in love with on Battleworld, and says, she saved my life. And Kitty's thought bubble says, so did I. But her speech bubble says, 
was she pretty? And oh that just, man. That just gets across so many of like the insecurities and conflicts that are all about being that age. It also gets across one of my favorite things that comics can do as a medium, which is to have those subtly discordant parallel narratives of what, you know, what people are thinking, what they're doing and what they're saying. I, I feel like the, the arc of Uncanny we covered before this was on the okay level. This is stellar. Ramita's really getting the characters. He's really got a distinct look for the book at this point. And Claremont, when he's doing some serious character interaction stuff, which is the, this arc is all about, that's where he really excels. Yeah. Early Ramita is better than I think I tend to give him credit for because I dislike the direction his art went. But yeah, this is solid. This is well drawn. Kitty's hair keeps changing length and style. I assume it's because she's not much in costume right now. So there's got to be something. Something, yeah. If, if it weren't for that, she'd just have like different types of animal face paint or temporary tattoos all the time or something. <laughs> but Fancy yeah. hats. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kitty remains conflicted. She sort of turns to Ilyana and Aurora for comfort. At one point, she's talking to Aurora and just ends the page with, I hate him, Aurora, with all my heart. I love him. Oh, teenagers. God. Professor Xavier lets her take a leave of absence and she to go have her own miniseries to go have her own miniseries in Japan with all of its questionable qualities. Uh, so she's actually going to be gone from the book after this for a while, as is Wolverine, but not quite yet. Because, because this is the first, I think, of a tradition of Nightcrawler and other friends going and having serious words with Kitty's boyfriends and or exes. Because Wolverine's like, hey, Peter, we're going to go and we're going to talk. And Peter's like, no, I got stuff to do, you know, Russian stuff. And Wolverine's like, nope, you're coming with me. We're going to go to a bar for uh, friendship stuff. Spoiler, it is ultimately friendship stuff, but it's basically Peter getting chewed out the entire time. I feel like being friends with Wolverine would probably make you a better person, but kind of suck a lot at the time. Like, he seems like one of those people who really cares about not letting his friends get away with the kind of dumb shit that he has historically done. Mm -hmm. This is a version of Wolverine, and this is a take on Wolverine, that I'll kind of actually buy opening a school, which is something that's kind of on and off for me in terms of credibility. He's really, uh, for lack of a better term, wise in this issue. He's basically explaining to Peter what he thinks happened, what Peter's motivations really were, because he's like, you know, you met this alien chick, and then she died, and now you can never love Kitty again? No, 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 no. Sometimes, bub, winnings is hard to deal with is losing. Kitty's not a kid anymore. You two were going beyond playing games. I'd like to point out that when I was typing this down, my computer kept autocorrecting. I'm like, no, Wolverine doesn't use ING endings. You were thinking marriage, a life together. At the same time, you suddenly had competition. Someone Kitty's age, as smart as her, with the same upbringing and interests. This is referring to- trying to marry her at age 15 right and that's referring to doug ramsey of course it's easy to moon over a lost love to fantasize over what might have been secure in the knowledge that it'll never happen it makes a great excuse for not facing the risks and demands of reality i have a question do we know if there's anywhere in the marvel multiverse where wolverine is effectively ann landers <laughs> ask james howlett i really want wolverine's advice column to be a thing now <laughs> I, marvel I, are you listening or, or fan artists are you are there you marvel it's me rachel anyway so they're having this big argument and everything's going well until colossus accidentally spills a drink on juggernaut who just happens to be at this bar after some misadventure with a sexy sexy lady with long black hair who will become pertinent later but Right now, what's pertinent is that Juggernaut doesn't like having beers spilled on him. I love what a casual antagonist Juggernaut is. Mm -hmm. yeah, the fact that this fight, it's not because of, you know, like a uranium heist or Galactus. It's not even because it's the X-Men. It's just because someone spilled a beer on him. <laughs> exactly. And so he and Colossus fight. And long story short, they knock down the bar, not just the bar. Juggernaut drops the entire multi-story building on Colossus. 
Wolverine and Nightcrawler do not step in. Nightcrawler's like, should we help? And Wolverine says, nope, this is going to be a lesson for the kid. And so Juggernaut, after beating the snot out of Pete, leaves and throws them some money and says, for the bar, which really makes me wonder what property values are like if a single roll of bills is going to take care of an entire multi-story building. He's a bank robber. You don't know what denomination those bills are. Those are $4,000 bills. I'm pretty sure that's not a thing. Are there multiple thousand dollar bills? This is so I don't know. We work in comics. We barely ever see anything above a 20. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, Colossus is like, well, why didn't you help, you jerks? And Wolverine, well, you can, you can describe this better than I can, I think, Rachel. There's a great speech about that. Wolverine can put this better than I can. I am not an advice columnist. <laughs> you let me fight alone. You didn't even try to stop him. Wait, I get to be Wolverine this time? Yes. Sorry. Do it. We are X-Men. We are supposed to stand by each other. That's the theory. But you betrayed that trust. Oh, yeah? We stand together, is that right? Through thick and thin, no matter what? Yes. We go to the wall for each other? Yes. Pay any price, make any sacrifice, our lives, even our honor? Yes. Like Kitty did for you. Aww. Uh, yeah, and you know, dude's kind of making a good point. He, he then points out Kitty was going to marry Caliban and live in the sewers forever to save Colossus's life, and he never even thanked her. And I like this because it's not them going, you shouldn't have broken up with her. It's them going, you shouldn't have been such an asshole about it. Yeah, and then we move away from this wonderful tableau just in time to see the lady with black hair sucking some dude's soul out. Was there a lady with black hair we've talked about recently who sucks people's soul out, perhaps? Not that we saw do it that directly. But in fact, the astute reader slash listener will notice, not our favorite villain at all, but one that keeps turning up, Celine. Yay. At this point, this is where this arc really picks up. There's been a lot of stuff that's been setting up what's going to happen, but now things get cray and stay there until the end of a few issues from now. Would you even say that they get so far as cray-cray? Yes, but not cray-cray-cray. That would be too much. So let's tangent to Val Cooper, everyone's favorite sister of everyone's favorite Kyle McLaughlin character Mm -hmm. and Raven Darkholm, everyone's favorite mystique cover identity working for the government. And they are off to visit a dude named Forge to get some fancy toys. So let's talk about Forge for a sec. Okay, first of all, I should point out that if I have an X-Men doppelganger, it is definitely Forge from the cartoon version of Wolverine and the X-Men. At least if I cut all my hair off and most of my beard. True story. So Miles had a goatee in college and we hadn't seen the cartoon yet. And I found this action figure at Goodwill that looked just like him. And I got it for him because I thought it was hilarious. He had it on his desk for ages and people would come in and double take and be like, where did you get an action figure of yourself? It's not just that he looks like you. It's that you've got the same put upon IT guy facial expression range. (laughs) I'm not sure how to feel about that. No, it's adorable. It's it's really, really inordinately charming. And it might be part of why I love Wolverine and the X-Men so much, along with the whole Nolan North as grumpy two-day beard cyclops i believe his official name is sad clops uh but yeah so forge is a character who will later go on to be a really big deal in x-men albeit not one of the characters that people tend to have as their favorite well a varyingly big deal uh yeah but he is a native american dude with a mustache specifically his mutant ability is that his brain can do inventy stuff that normal human brains cannot the extent and nature of his relationship to technology varies from writer to writer forge whether he's just a super good inventor or he's actually got some degree of technopathy technopathy i think that would be the word yeah is never quite clear and and is written somewhat inconsistently what i think the most interesting thing about him though is that i couldn't find a name for him other than a forge right i remember you i am to me about this when i was at work and i'm like oh that can't be right and looked around and i couldn't either yeah i I was looking and i checked with a bunch of other friends who've read a bunch of x-men and no one could think of one it's not on wikipedia it's not on any of the usual sources that we check dr internet was unable to help us and dr internet knows everything so listeners if you can dig this up please leave a comment on our blog because 
because we are baffled and troubled by this. Yeah, we both remembered him probably having another name. We may just be misremembering, but we would really like to sort this out. Well, that aside, this is Forge's uh, first appearance, I believe. Raven and Val are going to check in with him about... Some fancy toys. What we know about Forge immediately when we meet him are two things. First, he has a hella sweet, super fancy smart house. Platforms and furniture floating in this big empty sky. And second, that he dresses like a goddamn Tom of Finland drawing. He's wearing this super tight, striped, mostly open shirt. He's wearing a rugby shirt with the collar popped and teeny tiny running shorts with a D pointed on one side in the sassiest pose ever. Damn, Forge. Yeah, Forge is making some bold fashion statements here. I, for one, am wholly behind them. (laughs) So, yeah, when the two women do come in, they hear him arguing with this old Native American dude named Naze? Naze? I always said Naze. It's spelled N-A-Z-E. Yeah, I am not sure what the proper pronunciation of that would be. But regardless, Naze is talking about a bunch of mystical stuff and Forge is saying, I don't care. That's not part of my world anymore. Get out of here, old man. Also, I'm pretty sure he's really there. My notes say, is he really here or is he a hologram at this point? But then later on, he's definitely really there. So I think he is at this point, too. Forge's house is basically a set of floating platforms with environments holographically projected around them. It's extremely cool. He lives in the magical floaty holodeck. And he's working for the government, making weapons for them effectively. And we're going to find out pretty quickly that the weapons he's making are based on ROM Space Knight technology. This includes two main things, which are the analyzer, also known as the scanalyzer, which ROM uses to detect dire wraiths when they're disguised as people. Um, And which Forge has modified to detect mutants. Right. And a uh, zappy gun that, when Rom uses it, sends dire wraiths into limbo. But not that limbo. This is a different limbo. Not the one that Ilyana Rasputin spent time in. And Forge's depowers mutants. And I'm not really sure how he's extrapolating this technology, but apparently they really, really wanted to tie Rom into the storyline. So, sure. To be fair, there was a big Rom Space Knight storyline going on at the time where the government was in conflict with the dire wraith. So it was at least part of what the Marvel Universe was doing at this point. So Forge offers to demonstrate the non-effect of part of the technology turns on his mutant detector and immediately says oh no there's a mutant in the room guys with and a big grin and mystique immediately goes ah shit shit now i have to kill everyone here or else it's gonna blow my cover and probably just everyone in the city to be safe but no it turns out forge is actually talking about himself and it's interesting because it's really the first time we've seen someone casually self-identify as a mutant like that right now it's not the first time we've seen a mutant uninvolved in the mutant human conflict like sebastian shaw doesn't care about that he just wants power and the fact that he's a mutant to him just means he can do more stuff but Forge actively doesn't seem to have an opinion about it at all. Forge is sort of the independent equivalent to Sebastian Shaw in some ways here. He's doing his own thing. He wants to do the stuff that he thinks is cool and that he likes. He's doing it without a lot of regard for the potential consequences, something that's going to change over the course of this arc. Mm -hmm. He's doing it on an entirely mercenary basis. I can't imagine him thinking that Val Cooper is possibly going to use this for something cool and constructive and and friendly to mutant-human relations. She used my gun that takes mutant powers away to end world hunger. Huh. She modified it to build preschools <laughs> so speaking of dark futures mm-hmm. and potential slippery slopes of mutant human relationships the title of this issue is the past of future days so it's probably not a big surprise to anyone when rachel summers shows up now rachel summers you will remember from days of future past was the partner slash wife of franklin richards the son of mr fantastic and the invisible woman uh she was the one that sent kate pride's consciousness back in time into the body of the young kitty pride so we know we've only seen her before as a character in this crappy future who has time powers we learn very quickly that 
well, now that she's in the present, we don't know why yet. She also is a telepath and a telekinetic. Like her mom, Jean Grey. Right. And that is also, as I recall, new before she was just Rachel. And she has come back in time. She has basically, as a Hail Mary Pass, found a way to send herself physically back in time. Only it's becoming increasingly evident that she's gone back to the wrong past. That with the events of Days of Future Past, when the X-Men stopped the assassination of Senator Robert Kelly, the timeline split. And now she's she's coming from the 811 and she's in the 616. And just to remind people, Earth 811, Earth 616, those are multiverse designations which are used to talk about parallel universes. Right. The 616 is the base Marvel universe. That's the one where most of the comics you read take place. That's the one that's considered the main timeline the ways that she's able to figure this out, she's watching TV in, in a store window outside. She sees the X-Men in Japan fighting on TV, and she realizes it's definitely the wrong timeline. And the reason she realizes this is that Storm has awesome hair. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not phrased that way, but effectively, yes. It is, no. And and I think the object lesson here is that timelines in which Storm has a mohawk are inherently more positive than timelines in which she doesn't. Time Space 101 by Rachel Edden. Storm's mohawk for a better tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's your campaign uh, slogan right there. So Rachel uh, Summers, not Edidin, realizes someone's following her, heads into a nearby bar for shelter, and gets taken in by the kindly owner, Nick Damiano, which I think is a great name. She is obviously messed up. She's been on the streets of a future dystopia. She is. She hasn't eaten in days. She has the worst haircut ever, which is something that she clings to with remarkable tenacity over the years. That she does. It's one of those setups that sets off all of your red flags and, oh my god, don't go home with this enormous buff dude you just met at a bar even if it's very clearly a gay bar but she's a telepath which means that you can totally bypass that and she can be like yeah he's just really worried which makes him like the nicest person ever because he's like hey i'm I'm gonna leave work take this random potentially dangerous girl in and you know give her some clothes and some food and let her take a bath and let her sleep and he's just really super generous i like this guy it's yeah. really a shame he has to die. I was going to say, so does Celine. Because Celine shows up and eats his soul and kills him. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the name of the bar, because something we noticed is when there's something with a single initial in X-Men, it seems like it's always D. It, yeah, like uh, Dracula way back in the day gave Storm a monogrammed scarf that said D. Uh, Forge has a, a little capital D on, on his tiny shorts. So could we then perhaps say that X-Men is all about the D? I think we just got our episode title. <laughs> I think perhaps we did. Um, you know, we could. There are, there are other possibilities worth considering, which is, for example, that Dracula, Forge, and this bar owner are all proud graduates of Duke University. Dracula majored in vampire studies. Maybe Celine did, too, come to think of it. No, no, Celine didn't major in vampire studies. What's her major? I don't know. Highlander bullshit? Celine. Highlander bullshit, PhD. Uh, still better than Alex Summers has managed. That's true. So anyway, uh, Celine attacks Rachel Summers. She's got a powerful mind, so she wants to do the soul-eating thing with her, at which point the X-Men show up. No, she doesn't want to do the soul-eating thing with her. She senses Rachel's power, and she's like, shit, I want her as a protege. Oh, yeah, you're she totally right. She wants her as an apprentice. Mm-hmm. But regardless, the X-Men show up for a rescue mission, having found both Celine and Rachel through Cerebro. As they do. And they do, in fact, save her, although Celine gets away, at which point Rachel is very familiar with the X-Men, and the X-Men are like, who, who, who are you? I mean, I'm sure you're cool, but who are you? And so there's a brief explanation. Rachel realizes at this point, seeing how different everyone is, that she's definitely in the wrong timeline, meaning doing stuff here will not save the future she's from. And she doesn't tell them things like her last name. She hasn't told them her origin. She's their first dark future kid, isn't she? Oh, I think she is. She is. She's the forerunner of, you know, Cable. Cable Bishop. 
So many, yeah. This is so sweet. This is so. It's like watching a baby take their first steps down a hall toward convolution and cross timelines and horrible stories and strife. That poor baby. Strife with a Y, I mean. Or with an I. You could do both, really. You really can. <laughs> oh, X Men, you're so. growing up. Now we're going to get back to the future stuff later appropriately. But for now, the X-Men have a more immediate problem, too, in fact, the first of which is that anti-mutant gun that Forge made, which Mystique in her Raven Darkholm cover identity is learning, is intended, in fact, for use on Rogue. I'm not sure why she's surprised by this under the circumstances. Well, I'm not sure that she realized that Rogue was really on the government's radar at this point. That's a relatively recent development. I feel like if you work that high in the Department of Defense, Nick Fury putting out an APB with authorized deadly force is something that would come across your radar. Well, you know, that's the thing. Rogue's name is Rogue, so maybe Mystique's like, oh, you know, it's a rogue agent or whatever. Oh, maybe someone forgot to capitalize it in the memo? That's probably the problem. Lowercase r just confuses everything. (sighs) Sometimes they misspell it completely and beauty supply shops just like all along the coast get wrecked. Rouge? Why are we killing Rouge? Well, whatever. Let's go to it. Yeah, Fury's orders. (laughs) Um, so that's all going on. Mystique realizes what's what's happening, and she gets really, really mad. And she tells Forge, who also gets really, really mad, because he, he didn't think this thing was ready for prime time at all. He doesn't know how it's going to have any Right. Effect. He let them have it if they promised not to use it, which is sort of bizarre, because, again, what did he think they were going to do? And the only person really keeping a level head here is Destiny, who Mystique goes back and vents to about this, and who basically tells her what you tell a panicking supervillain, which is, I want you to follow your heart. Meanwhile, at the X-Mansion, speaking of people who are having rough weeks, Rachel Summers is again having some trouble with timeline disambiguation, this time expressed by a really sad attempt to call her parents. Oh, it's rough. She, she calls Cyclops. She sees the number and he picks up. He's like, hello. And she, she can't say anything. He's like, hey, who is this? Is anyone there? And, you know, then Madeline says, what's going on, honey? And Rachel, of course, interprets that as being Jean. Well, right, because it's Jean's voice. And it's rough. And she just hangs up and curls up and cries. Man, she is, I wrote in the outline, she is all PTSD and terrible haircuts and timeline shock. And that's really all she is personality-wise for a while. While this is all going on, Rogue's kind of freaking out after the Rossi thing. So she's just left. And Storm finds her specifically in Mississippi, trying to kind of get in touch with her roots and figure out who she is again, pre-Carol. And there's a really, really great few pages of dialogue here where they talk and Rogue is just talking about how messed up she is. She knows that what she did was completely wrong, but she still resents the results of it. She doesn't know whether to be loyal to Xavier's team or to her mother's brotherhood of mutants. And she hates having other people's powers and other people's minds in her head because every single one of them feels like a reminder of something terrible she's done and also like something that's intruded on her. Yeah, I think Claremont got Rogue's voice pretty much right off, uh, not on her first appearance, but soon after. But as far as her personality, this scene right here is where Rogue becomes the Rogue that we know and love. Yeah, this is Rogue trying to actually reason some stuff out. It's not the super scared, super tentative Rogue who first shows up at Xavier's, and it's not the super brash, sassy Rogue who we've seen when she's trying to put up a brave front. What Storm says at this point is, you know, how would you like to try absorbing someone's powers consensually? And so that's exactly what happens. And it's real. I really like the way this is written because, of course, Storm falls unconscious, as, as happens. But Rogue's voice, and she actually comments on this fact, starts becoming a really good mix of her own voice and Storm's, the more formal language of Storm and the more, you know, she, she does the whole by the goddess kind of thing a couple times. Mm-hmm. And it's quite endearing. But unfortunately, good things can never last in X-Men. Because, because Walter Peck shows up. 
Right. Walter Peck, which is to say Henry Peter Gyrick, with Chekhov's gun, which is to say the anti-mutant gun. Long story short, Rogue, with Storm's powers, fights them. Eventually, Storm does wake up, and unfortunately, Gyrick, while trying to shoot Rogue, ends up hitting Storm, who pushes Rogue out of the way full blast, and Storm kind of has her mutant energy explode outward Doctor Who regeneration style. Well, I want to go back a little bit because what happens specifically, Storm's unconscious. Gyrick shoots Rogue, but he's got the gun at a low setting, and she's just absorbed someone, and she's got the weird Carol Danver power set, so it, it just stuns her. It doesn't actually depower her. And then Storm wakes up, and Forge shows up and is trying to get away from Gyrick, and he tackles Gyrick as Gyrick is aiming, and the gun goes off wildly, and Storm pushes Rogue out of the way and takes the full shot. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's watching a, dominoes fall. It is a perfect storm of shitty consequences. Oh, oh. I know, but it was the right phrase to use. It was apt. There apt, are, there, no, you. there are so many other idioms that you could have used there. Again, I did, watching dominoes fall. Well, Domino hasn't appeared Meltdown, yet. Meltdown, China Syndrome, I don't know. Uh, anyway. Meltdown's still called Boom Boom. Uh, <laughs> so, Rogue gets swept away in the weather. Forge takes Storm with him, the now helpless We don't helpless see him do Storm. that, do we? Well, we do see him with her in his custody in the next okay. issue. And that issue is, I think, one of the most famous standalone or relative standalone issues of X-Men. This is Life Death by Chris Claremont and drawn by a fill-in artist, Barry Windsor Smith. It is one of the best issues of X-Men I have ever read. It's not a very X-Men issue. It's very much a Storm and Forge story. And the best thing about it, I think, I mean, the writing is terrific, but the art is just superlative. Barry Windsor Smith was, I think, at this point, best known for his work on Conan. He is a stunningly textured and intricate draftsman, and his versions of Storm and Forge is where my definitive mental images of both of them come from. And it's, it's just beautiful from the start. I mean, you, you see Storm under these tangled sheets in bed, asleep or unconscious, with just a caption, once upon a time there was a woman who could fly. Yeah, man, that opening and that contrast between art and text is so stark. And it's got that sort of fairy tale, that feel of being a little bit removed from real life and reality, which is a theme with Storm to some extent, but very, very much a theme for Forge. And the issue also really benefits from taking the time to let the story breathe, to let the new interaction between these characters grow. And really, when it comes down to it, Life, Death, as much as anything else, is a love story. In fact, I believe that's that's on the cover as the subtitle. And the fact that it doesn't resolve as a love story is, I think, one of the things that makes it most effective. I agree. Because the bulk of it is Forge just trying to convince Storm to live, to not kill herself. Well, and Storm feeling out who she is now. We've talked in previous episodes, I think most significantly in the one titled Aurora, Queen of the Galaxy, about the arc of Storm's identity during this era of Claremont's X-Men. Storm is a character who has been, for much of her life, defined by her powers. And that's something she talks about explicitly, that she's cultivated this serenity and detachment because she has these incredibly, incredibly powerful elemental abilities that could destroy ecosystems easily. And in fact, I just want to pull this straight out of the text because the writing in this, like we were talking about earlier, Claremont's at his best when he has characters interact, when he really gets to the core of who they are and who they are with each other. This actually comes toward the end of Life Death, so we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. But of late, even before I lost my powers, I've been living on the raw edge of my emotions, feeling, reacting to everything as intensely as can be. The first lesson I learned, and a very harsh one it was, too, was that my elemental abilities were bound up with my emotions. 
the greater my emotions, the more extreme the atmospheric response. To protect myself and those around me, I cultivated an absolute serenity of mind and body, so much that I lost virtually all awareness of myself as a woman. A few months ago, I cast away those restraints. I could no longer endure my self-enforced spiritual celibacy, so I rebelled. I cut my hair, changed my clothes. Like you, I denied as completely as I could my old world and self and beliefs. Now, what irony, the problem no longer exists. I need not fear my feelings, for the only person affected, the only one at risk, will be me. I want to talk about the decision to depower Aurora, because this is something that comes up a lot, and it comes up a lot especially in terms of powerful female characters in comics. We talked about this with the Dark Phoenix saga, but I think the inflection and the narrative context makes all the difference. That depowering Storm doesn't relegate her to a backseat role. If anything, it makes her even more prominent as a character in the X-Men. And if anything else, it highlights how devastatingly competent she is and how much her powers are part of who she's become. But foundationally, who she is goes way beyond them. She's got a solid personal identity in a way that she really didn't when she first came onto X-Men. What makes Life Death work so well is that she's contrasted with and against Forge, who's a character that we learn hasn't been through the same process by any means, but has been through a process that's somewhat parallel. He was raised in a mystical tradition. But it's one that he's very, very directly and explicitly rejected. Right. I mean, we see this dude who's all technology, who's all like clean, cold capitalism and self-interest. And it's also all about controlling the spaces and environments around him. That at least comes from the fact that he's he's disabled. He's a Vietnam veteran who was injured catastrophically in an explosion. And Storm initially really resents Forge. Like, who are you to tell me how to live my life? You don't know what this is like. And changes her mind a little bit when they're swimming later in the issue. And she notices his prosthetic leg and the glove to cover his severely injured hand. No, it's, it's prosthetic. Right. But she sees that on the side of the pool and realizes, oh, you've been through some shit too. And it's, it's so good seeing these two, in some ways, very broken characters really tentatively start to bond and trust each other and trust themselves to rebuild in a way that Forge hasn't in years and Storm hasn't in the short time since she lost her powers. And it all goes straight to hell for two reasons. The first of which is that it eventually comes out that Forge is the guy who designed the gun that depowered Storm. She accidentally overhears this in a phone conversation he's having with Henry Peter Gyrick. Second diorates attack. Yeah, so see, that's the weirdest part about this arc. The antagonists are random magic aliens from an action figure line. Yep. But at the same time, like I said, the Marvel Universe is really good at using whatever random crap happens to be going on, and in the hands of a good writer, turning that into story fodder that really fits the book in question. The Dire Wraiths feel like clutter to me. They could have found or made villains or antagonists that made way more sense. One of the things that you pointed out when we were talking about Life Death this morning is that the best action sequence in it is Storm fighting against a virtual environment that she accidentally triggered in Forge's house. It's not her fighting against enemies or villains. When the actual dire wraiths come in, they're silly. They're overpowered to a point that requires the rest of the X-Men to eventually show up and save the day and sorceress snap Amanda Sefton to come help. You know, Life Death is the first issue in a long time that's actually had that breathing room I talked about initially. And then suddenly it's just back into what feels like X-Men plot Mad Libs. I guess like, so. Fill in an antagonist. Fill in a conflict. So-and-so saves the day. Fill in a cute gimmick. Fill in 
12 different characters. But at the same time, we Claremont really does weave in what's going on. I mean, he has Rogue going after Val Cooper, who, being a government person, is dealing with dire wraith stuff. And, you know, dealing with her own attitudes about revenge and how, how useful that is. We have Storm as a dire wraith's attack, because they're scared of Forge's ROM space-time technology, going back into the home of this person she either never wanted to see again or wanted to kill— while the villains may be kind of pointless and irrelevant, we do get some great character drama in the conflict against them. Again, it's not that any of these are bad elements, and the character stuff is really good, it's just swamped by the static of there being so much at once. Without going into more detail than we need to, they fight the Dire Wraiths, it's really epic, and we get to see Storm show just how strong-willed and tough she is even without her power. She's still more resourceful than, like, anybody else in the X-Universe. You know, remember, we talked about that character transformation and her starting to figure herself out starting in the Morlock Tunnels. Remember what she did there? Yeah, stabbed Callisto in the heart. Storm's powers are incidental to Storm's effectiveness. This is quite true. And eventually the day is, in fact, saved, uh, like you mentioned. First, though, shadow pterodactyls. Well, uh, we can probably skip the shadow pterodactyls. Miles, shadow pterodactyls. <laughs> the point is the dire wraiths, in an attempt to eliminate them, Naze calls upon the Great One, which is some sort of deity, and ends up tapping into something far darker, which requires magic to defeat. Both magic, the concept, and magic with a K, the character, because she shows up. And for the first time reveals herself as a sorceress in front of her brother. And he, of course, says, hey, you're my little sister. You're special and wonderful and I love you no matter what. Because Colossus, even when he makes bad relationship decisions, is a real good dude. Then everyone goes home just in time for Leaf Forester in the middle of an ocean somewhere to save Magneto from sharks. Because sure, why not? And then, meanwhile, in New York, a dude finds a magic amulet and a crate of fish. It's true. You know uh, what I said about Mad Libs? Mad Libs. <laughs> but what really does bring it home is that after this, after the X-Men realize the government went, went far enough to commission a weapon to specifically take away what made mutants mutants, it's actually Nightcrawler, you know, the heart of the team, the sort of kind, forgiving core of the X-Men, who pulls a beast from early Silver Age X-Men and says, hey, what's the freaking point? Why are we even doing this? Why are we fighting for this world? if they're only ever going to hate us and try to destroy us. Well, he also makes the point that the school makes a lot of sense and the team really doesn't. There are other people with who are more powerful, who are more equipped, and who can deal with this shit without the government trying to hunt them down. Maybe they should concentrate on finding and protecting and training mutant kids and saving them from mobs and not do the superhero nonsense for now. And Xavier says, do you really think running away is the answer? To which a furious Kurt replies, at least I'll be living for myself and the woman I love instead of some amorphous dream. Does that sound selfish? Well, I feel I've earned the right. We all have. Look at us, Professor. Of the X-Men you gathered, Banshee and Storm maimed, Thunderbird killed, Jean Grey killed, where will it end? And this is the first that Rachel Summers, who is listening through the door, has heard of Jean Grey being killed. So she freaks out, by the, and the X-Men calm her down, but eventually she tells them the story of her timeline and what it's like and why it's so important. She says, there are those among us who wanted only vengeance, talking about her timeline. They wanted the scales balanced in fire and blood, life for life. But the X-Men stood for something better. They never lost hope, no matter what. Because of them, Professor Xavier's dream of a world where normal and mutant could live in peace and fellowship, where there wouldn't be any distinction between them, we'd all just be human, never died. If you turn away from that dream, Kurt, you'll do more damage than you know. We may be doomed, ours may be a lost cause, but sometimes the way we live and die is more important than the simple fact of it. Give up now, and all those sacrifices, in my world as much as yours, will have been for nothing. And man, this is one of those things that's so heart-wrenching to read in context, but is, I gotta say, vaguely satisfying and cathartic if you know what we know, which is that not now, 
and not soon, but years from now in Excalibur, she's going to go back there and she's actually going to fix that future. There aren't very many happy endings in X-Men, but we do get them. And Rachel Summers, ultimately, well, briefly. Earth 811 gets a hopeful ending. Rachel Summers gets lost in the time stream after that, but that's a whole other conversation. Speaking of whole other conversations, you've got questions. Yes, indeed. So, Grosso Hermoso on Tumblr asks, So recently I've been digging Rachel Gray because of the No Adjective X-Men series. Forget her impossible-to-comprehend backstory, I'm confused by her facial stripes. Sometimes she has them, sometimes she doesn't. Got an explanation? We sure do, Grosso Hermoso. So those stripes are actually tattoos. They are hound tattoos that were used unmarked by hounds, who are mutants who were brainwashed and used by Ahab, who's... Going to be a cold open someday. Short version, in the Days of Future Past Future, he's in charge of, of tracking down and hunting down renegade mutants. They're still there when you can't see them. She just often uses her psionic powers to hide them. Back next caliber, they'd re-manifest when she lost control or when she was using her powers and focusing on something else. These days, I think it's mostly a design call. Basically, it's a question of whether the character is written as hiding them or not. What else? Um, so Adam Blackhat on Twitter asks, has anyone ever written an Elseworlds or alternate universe story with the characters aging normally? So there have probably been a few, but the one that jumped to mind for me was a, uh, a series called X-Men The End. It was actually three miniseries that went together by Chris Claremont, which were later followed up with even more miniseries. But yeah, the idea was, what if, for one thing, Claremont had been able to decide how things went, and for another thing, the characters had aged in roughly real time. Now, it's still a little iffy, just because who the hell knows how old some of these characters are. But for instance, one of the main characters was a, a teenage girl named Alia, who was the daughter of Bishop and Deathbird, and a lot of the other X-Men had kids as well. So there's that one. It's pretty cool. It's it's Latter-day Claremont, which a lot of people don't like as much as the early Claremont, but it is fun, and the idea of the last X-Men story ever is kind of a cool concept, so it might be worth a look. Meanwhile, we also have a number of Patreon supporters who have really stuck with us, and we wanted to thank them for being badass. We're going to be spreading these out. People have been, have been around for three and more months. That's going to start kicking on. We're going to try to do a, a few each episode. So for now, I will turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. Will we ever truly understand what Melanie's patronage may have unleashed? Can you keep supporting this podcast, Sam Keeley? Can you? In the end, with only our gratitude beside him, the man known as Luke Hare is alone. <laughs> this world is terrifying. <laughs> it's, again, people requested angry Claremontian narrator thanks. I, I will do my best. <laughs> Meanwhile, I believe we're out of time, so let's finish it up. As always, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the co-host to the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing and Full of Sith, both of which you can find on the interwebs. You can uh, check us out on Sundays with new episodes at uh, rachelandmiles.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. rachelandmiles.com also has visual companions to every episode, as well as essays and additional content. This is all, of course, made possible by our glorious Patreon supporters, some of whom are watched over by an omniscient jerk. So thank you guys so much. If you'd like to become a patron, check out the link at the top of our website and of course rate and review us on itunes and stitcher that's awesome too next week we're going to be going back to the new mutants and oh man we are finally on the sinkhevich run do you know what that means you know what we're finally going to get to do we're going to get to demon bears slumber parties and the most charming angry scribble in the cosmos our buddy warlock see you next time you